When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there and welcome back, my friends. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you are listening to the second bonus episode in the Real Life Sustainable Minimalist series. On today's show, I'm speaking with Muriel Garbarino, and we are discussing what it is like to be 22 years old and facing an uncertain future on an uncertain planet. So that's where I'm really hoping our chat goes today. I want to say thank you first and foremost to all the listeners who reached out with feedback on our first episode in this bonus series. The overwhelming feedback was that I, I was not as laid back and cool and calm as I thought I was in my head. So everybody just watch out. I'm going to be super cool <laughs> and laid back on today's episode, or at least I'm really going to try to get out of my interview habits. Muriel, how are you? I am doing well, Stephanie. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to talk to you. You had sent me a really wonderful email all about your sustainable minimalist journey. And why don't we start there? Give us your 30-second elevator pitch. Who are you and what do you do? So my name is Muriel Garbarino. Uh, I'm a 22-year-old and I live in Michigan. I recently graduated college with a degree in natural resources management. Um, I studied at Grand Valley State University. And I love the outdoors. And that is kind of what pushed me to study that and want to do that as my job. So what are you doing these days as a job? I work for my county's parks and recreation department. And I'm on what's called the stewardship crew. So we do land stewardship activities like removing invasive species, planting native species, doing habitat restoration. So I'm outside a lot. Well, we just need to pause right there and talk about my all-time favorite show, which is, of course, Parks and Rec. I'm hoping you've seen it and love it as much as me. I've seen a few episodes. I feel like it's not super accurate compared to the specific parks and recreation department I work for, but but it is still hilarious and very relatable. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to give you homework and it's to watch the whole eight seasons or whatever it is. But anyway, back to you <laughs> and away from Leslie Nope. Um, <laughs> I want to know right off the bat, 
what is it like for you as a 22-year-old? You have your whole life ahead of you. What is it like for you when you consider all the scary stuff in the news as it relates to the health of planet Earth? It is something that seems to be constantly on my mind. I think about climate change every day, it seems like. And we're already seeing, you know, increased natural disasters and changing temperatures. And even here in Michigan, this winter, like, as a child, we had so much snow, and we're just not seeing that. So it's, it's really scary. And it's on my mind quite a lot. Would you say you are in the majority with that or are you in the minority? I would say out of the people, at least that I tend to interact with, I'm in the minority overall, um, other than the people I interact with professionally. I think of the people who are in the natural resources field, obviously, we studied ecology, we understand that climate change is a real issue. And we're all on on board with, you know, making changes and doing things differently. But then out of the rest of the people I interact with, I think people are concerned, but not concerned to the point where they're taking action. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to be an informed citizen and not be concerned, right? (laughs) But then it's a whole nother thing to perhaps maybe take some steps in the right direction. And I want to get into, you know, you have a lot of successes as a 22-year-old. As a 22-year-old, you're doing, I think, more than I'm probably doing as a (laughs) 36-year-old. So why don't we start there? Tell us, you know, what are you doing sustainability-wise that uh, you're really proud of? Um, I'll get to that in one second. But what you said about being informed, um, I think that is the main thing that people struggle with is that they just don't know where they haven't thought about it, which is one reason why, you know, podcasts like yours are so important, because then I can just, you know, if there's an episode or something that I come across, I can share it with someone and then maybe their eyes are opened there too. Uh, Same with just kind of climate change and other environmental problems being in the news more um, and being talked about on social media, I think that's really important just to inform more people about what an issue it is. So thank you for for doing that. Well, thank you for listening. I wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for people who tuned in every week. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, but some of my sustainability successes, I... It's difficult because I do, I live in an an apartment. So what I can do in regards to certain things is kind of dictated by that. Uh, For example, I have a worm compost. So um, I bought some red regular worms online and I found some plastic totes at Goodwill and set up the worm compost, which is awesome because then I'm sending less 
food scraps to landfill and obviously wasting as little food as possible. I'd rather not use the worm compost at all. But the one thing I will say that's kind of a challenge with that is the worms won't eat anything that's like super hard to break down, like avocado pits. So I do end up throwing things like that away. But the compost is definitely a success. There's also a community garden that is like less than two miles away from me. So my boyfriend Taylor and I, we have plots there and we'll ride our bikes there. Uh, and last year was our first year uh, growing there. And we grew tomatoes and cucumbers and all this wonderful stuff. So it's great to be able to grow food without having to one, buy it in the store where it might be packaged in plastic and there might not be a plastic free option like cherry tomatoes. Um, and it's just great because it's not getting shipped from far away. I just have to pause you for a second because I know you have a lot of successes, but I really want to backtrack a little bit and just talk about your worm compost, your vermicomposting. And I need to talk to you about that because it's something that I've never done and I feel like the stigma around it is so um, like, oh, no way. That's that's only what crunchy people do. <laughs> so my first question is, what do your friends and family think about your Goodwill totes filled with worms? And my second question is, how can we demystify worm composting for people who live in small spaces so that it doesn't seem like this super crunchy, super hippie hobby? Well, I will say first that my friends think I'm pretty crunchy. So they're like, of course you have a worm bin. But of all the people that I've shown it to, no one has ever said like, oh, that's disgusting. Everyone has been so interested. And I've asked people, well, do you want to see the worms? And they're like, yeah. So then, you know, you dig down in the bedding and you can show them the worms. And I think the main thing that people are concerned about is the smell. But it really, we have it in a closet and it really doesn't smell. It smells like, like earth and compost, but it doesn't smell bad. So I think making it more accessible to people, maybe it's just, you know, more people seeing it and realizing that it's not gross and then trying it. Hmm. Has anybody who's gotten up close and personal with your worms started a worm composting system in their own home? No, but I have had one friend of mine kind of ask me about it and ask me how it's going. And he said that he was thinking about it and he just kind of wanted to hear, you know, how it was going for me before he started one. So that's at least something. Yes. I mean, that's that's so important when somebody comes at you with genuine interest. I feel like it's on all of us to meet that interest with um, educated and informed responses, and in this case, a hands-on experience, perhaps, which I think you provided him. So maybe he did not. Maybe he didn't jump into um, vermicomposting, but you planted a seed, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I really want to harp on this because it's a topic I never have covered on this show. Can you just walk us through 
what your routine is to maintain this ideal environment for your worms? So red wrigglers are different than the types of earthworms that we have here in Michigan. And they migrate upward. So the system that I have is a two-bin system. So the idea being that you will feed the worms in one bin, and then when you want to harvest the compost, you put the other bin on top and start feeding that. And then the worms will migrate up to where the food is and then leave behind the compost because otherwise you would have to pick through the compost and pull out the the worms and the other stuff that's in there. So that's kind of long-term, the idea of the bin setup. But day-to-day, things like banana peels and um, like vegetable scraps, which I save to make stock, but then after we make the stock, we'll feed them to the worms. But all of those types of things that can break down, um, we will put them, we have like a, basically a um, bucket that goes in the freezer with a lid and we'll just add our scraps to that until we have a full bucket and then we'll thaw it on the counter for a day and then feed it to the worms. So how hard is it really? Um, I would say that the setup is like the difficult part because you have to drill holes in the bins and shred up newspaper for them. But I mean, it's like I had banana oatmeal for breakfast and it took me an extra 30 seconds to cut the banana up into pieces because like when you cut stuff into pieces, the worms can break it down quicker. So it's not, I would say like maybe an extra, I don't know, 20 minutes a week, not even probably more like 10. Yeah. And I'm comparing your answer to the extra, and I'm doing air quotes, extra time that it takes me to walk to my outdoor compost bin, my tumbler. Uh, yeah, like maybe, I wouldn't even say 20 minutes. I would say 20 minutes every three months even. It's really just that easy. I would say, and I have said that composting at least out doors with a tumbler or some sort of bin is just a third sort of your trash, right? If we're if we can recycle, we can compost, at least the way I do it. The worms, I'm not so sure about, but I'm really thankful that you gave us that demystification of the vermicos vermicomposting process. I want to get back to like what you're doing really great at. And you mentioned that you're <laughs> biking a lot. You mentioned that you're growing some of your own food. Uh, I want to get into you mentioning that you've been buying less and you've been shopping secondhand more. What does that look like for a 22-year-old who I presume has, maybe not during COVID, but like a amazing social life and <laughs> is doing fun things all the time? What does secondhand shopping look like in real life for you? Well, I guess... First off, I'd like to say that most of my clothes growing up were secondhand. My mom was big into, you know, shopping at Goodwill and it was more of a frugality thing for her, but she just had the knack of like finding really nice stuff. So I don't think I had the same 
stigma that some people have about secondhand shopping, like, oh, like those are someone's gross old clothes. But I think the main thing is it just takes kind of time to sort through what's there because a lot of it is fast fashion stuff that I know if I buy it and wash it twice, it's going to fall apart. So it's just kind of taking the time to look for things that are quality items. And I think a lot of the time I'll go into the store and not buy anything or I'll buy one thing that I found that was a quality item. Do you ever thrift online or do you solely go to a brick and mortar store? I have heard about thrifting online and I have not yet done it. But it it's something that I think I would consider if I was looking for something really specific, like if I had like a wedding or something to go to and I couldn't find anything. But I like being able to like, this is going to sound weird, but like touch the fabrics because then I can like kind of feel the type of quality that it is. And usually, like, I'll go through, like, a rack and, like, I can almost feel, like, stuff that's 100% cotton because it feels different than stuff that's made out of polyester. And that's usually what I look for is either cotton or wool or stuff like that. That doesn't sound strange at all. That makes total sense. I would say that, you know, I used to be a shopper who bought the trendiest and the cheapest thing because <laughs> that's what everybody was doing that's um what i assumed shopping was right you go to the mall you buy what's in style you buy what's on sale and then you rock it for a little while <laughs> and then it pills and stretches and then you pass it along i thought that's what um fashion was and i should say that with the caveat that i'm not at all fashionable but uh, it wasn't until I really started learning about different fibers and natural fibers versus synthetic fibers. Listeners, by the way, I did a whole episode on that. Before learning any of that, I had no idea that a natural fiber, like a cotton, like a 100% wool, like a linen, like a hemp, really has a, I don't want to say a luxurious feel, but it feels like something that's going to last. So I can totally understand why you would want to, you know, rub it between your fingers and put your hands on it, literally. Have you had any gigantic successes in shopping secondhand for stuff unrelated to clothes? Yeah. Just the other day, I was at a shop. It's called Ditto's. That's the name of the resale shop. But we found these chairs that were made of actual wood, not like particle board, and they were upholstered and they were made in the United States and they were eight bucks a piece and we got two of them. So it was nice. We had, they're kind of like lounging chairs and we had a really crummy old like chair like sofa chair that was falling apart and it was nice to be able to finally replace that and for $16 it was great and I didn't have to get it shipped to me and it was made however many years ago and now I get to give it a home and I didn't have to buy it new so that was a pretty big success. Hmm. 
I know you mentioned that you grew up wearing secondhand clothes, so you didn't have that mind barrier to jump over as you embrace secondhand. And I would say that I my my childhood was different. I was not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but we always did um, buy new, new everything. We secondhand wasn't in our vocabulary even, and it was cheap. It was cheap new stuff. It wasn't good quality new stuff, um, but it was always new. And so I always find myself kind of fighting back against um, against that mindset that new is best because new, if it's junk, isn't best. And so I guess my question here, and I know this is a super loaded question, so I mean, don't feel like you need to solve all of the world's problems with your answer, but do you have any ideas on how to combat a new is best mindset? Because I feel like societally, new is best is the pervasive way of thinking. I think it comes back to how rampant consumerism is in our society because we're constantly being sold the next new thing. And when we're being bombarded with all of these advertisements, obviously people are going to want to buy stuff. And I think that just because something is new, it makes it seem like it gives people like a rush of dopamine of like finding something like, you know, oh, like I've, this is brand new. I need to have it because nobody else has it. And that, I don't know how to change that mindset in people, but maybe it's just finding other ways to, you know, satisfy that urge of finding something, whether that be, you know, learning something or making something or going secondhand shopping and sorting through a bunch of stuff and then finding that one perfect thing, like piece that you've been looking for, you know, and it's, it's really difficult, especially some people are just so, you know, and it's, I don't think it's anybody's fault. It's just, you know, massive companies trying to sell us stuff that a lot of us probably don't need. And I don't know how to change that, but I think we're, we're getting there because thrifting is a popular hobby for a lot of younger people right now. And hopefully that kind of gets the ball rolling for people to realize that new isn't always best. Yeah. And I should just say, piggybacking off of your point about the surge of dopamine when you buy something new, it's absolutely possible to get that surge of dopamine when you find the diamond in the rough when you're shopping secondhand. I've experienced it myself many a times. <laughs> it's almost even a, if, you, if you're a 
slave to the rush. That's not a good expression. But if you really like that shopping high, I would argue in some cases that the shopping high when you find a really great something secondhand is even, you know, above and beyond what you would get when uh, you're buying something new. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would agree because I feel like as you know, a 20 something who doesn't make a ton of money. There are some things I own that I bought secondhand that I would not have been able to afford new. So being able to find something, it's like, wow, I need this. I can use this. And it's only $4 and it's secondhand is like the best like feeling ever. So that I, I think that it's, I would say that it's better, at least for me, but I will say that it's a lot of, it's a lot of time. And I definitely understand that not a lot of people have the time to go digging through a bunch of stuff. And I think that's why online uh, retailers are becoming more popular because it's definitely less labor intensive, but it's, I don't know, a question that I have, and I don't know if you know the answer to this is what happens i've looked into it but what happens to all the stuff that doesn't get bought at resale shops because a lot of it honestly is just kind of junk and then it must find its way into the landfill somehow hopefully not just out into the environment but that's always my concern when i'm sorting through all this stuff looking for the stuff that's nice it's like what's going to happen to the rest of this stuff if somebody doesn't buy it great question and i did do an episode on that for anybody else who has that question i believe it was called where do goodwill donations actually go and i don't remember the number but it was a an interview with author adam minter and he uh sat outside a goodwill for an exorbitant amount of time, I want to say six months, I'll have to go back and listen. But he found that the fast fashion clothes, if they were made um, with a decent amount of natural fibers, they were sold to rag dealers for pennies, and they became rags or the stuffing for stuffed animals, that kind of thing. The rest was then trashed with electronics, they were scrapped for parts. And then the parts were sold for a small amount of money, and then the rest was trashed. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't even matter almost if it's a quality item, if it's a uh, cruddy item, it's all going to go to the same place at the end of the day. And I think that's an important thing for everybody to keep in mind. We can extend the lives of our items, but the the <laughs> the end play, resting place is, of course, the landfill. If you had to choose one pain point, and when I say pain point, I mean one of your biggest challenges right now as you are attempting to live a more sustainable, minimalist existence, what would you say it is? Um, hmm. I would say feeling like what I'm doing doesn't matter because... And I know that in at least in a small way it does, but it's it can be really sad sometimes when you think about you know all of the all of the other people out there who are 
you know, in not not meaning like to put down other people who don't have worm compost. I know people are busy. People come from different places socioeconomically, and I understand that. But it's hard sometimes when I think about the effort that I'm putting in to try and lessen my impact on the planet. So like for the benefit of both the planet, but the human race in general, and then thinking this might not even matter because I'm just one person. And that can be sad sometimes. Yeah, I feel it too. Uh, (laughs) The hopelessness is always kind of on the periphery, right? Like, uh, I don't have an answer to that. My answer is to fight back as hard (laughs) as I can with this show. And sounds like you've dedicated your life to environmental causes. You've dedicated your career to it. I wish I had (laughs) advice for you. I don't. I just have camaraderie. I think everybody and anybody who um, identifies as green-leaning experiences that. Yeah, and it's not, I don't feel like that all the time. A lot of the time I am, I wouldn't want to live another way because the, the alternative is giving up and doing nothing. And I don't think that I could do that. That was when I was in school learning about all of these different environmental problems and realizing, huh, I feel like I'm contributing to some of these. And that's just like, if I value the environment, I need to make my actions align with my values. So I realized that I had to change. And it's, it can get overwhelming sometimes, but then I really just try and celebrate the small victories. I had a friend say to me the other day that I'm the little voice in his head when he's about to throw like a glass bottle that he knows that's recyclable into the garbage. He's like, no, Muriel would want me to like put it in the recycling, like washed out properly. So I just try and focus on the positives. And especially like, I, I don't want to be pretentious in any way. And everyone starts somewhere different. But if I can convince someone or not even try and convince them, if I can just show them what I'm doing, and then they take that and maybe make some small changes in their life. I that's that's really what keeps me going. I think that's a great place to leave it. I love the uh dedication to hopefulness as opposed to hopelessness and I really just want to thank you not only for <laughs> being a real steward of the planet but also being a um a leader, a 22-year-old leader. Uh, You're doing a lot, and I appreciate you coming on my show to talk to me. I I really love this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show, Stephanie. And I have been listening for quite a while, and it was great to actually talk to you about this stuff, and I enjoyed it a lot. I so hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Muriel Garbarino. I enjoyed it. It was a good one. This is me as cash as I can possibly be. (laughs) I want to hear from all of you. 
with regard to how you like these interviews, whether they are providing benefit to you. And please just be ruthless. Uh, It's a lot of work to put out two episodes a week. So if you're not enjoying them, I want to hear about it because I am all about doing less work, not more, and working smarter, not harder. I'm enjoying them, but if you're not, you should tell me. And conversely, if you're loving them, you should totally tell me that too because that will give me the motivation to keep on editing in the wee hours of the morning. I will be back on Tuesday with your regularly scheduled and super non-cash interview. I will see you then. Have an amazing week. Stay home, stay healthy, and take care, my friends.